Good morning, church. Um, my name is Susan, and I will be uh, reading Revelation 2, 18 through 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on, on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, Susan. Good morning, church. Really good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, it's great just to, to be together in worship. This is, a, uh, this is a heavy word from Revelation, even just the reading of it. So, uh, man, as we come to it, let's just really be seeking the Lord as he, uh, as he directs us. Uh, hey, we're in installment number five of our series in Revelation. It's qualities that Jesus looks for in a church. Uh, if you have ever looked for a church in any capacity, probably you had either very consciously or maybe less consciously kind of a list of things that you were hoping that you would find there. Uh, interestingly, Jesus has a list too. Uh, when we look at the scriptures, and in particular this passage in Revelation, the first three chapters of Revelation, Jesus appears to the Apostle John. And he gives him these seven letters, or has him write these seven letters to seven churches, and each of these highlights a quality that Jesus says is essential for the church. Uh, the first one, just to review a little bit, the first one was love. He came to the church at Ephesus and, and said to them, love is this overarching quality that you have to have, or even the good things that you have going on in your fellowship become corrupt outside of love. Uh, second, uh, we saw in uh, the next church faithfulness, following Jesus, even when it is costly. This was what was needed for them in Smyrna, where they were undergoing some pretty harsh persecution. Faithfulness was the next quality, uh, or rather, um, truth, rather, is what Doug took us through last week, a deep commitment to living by God's word. 
In all of these, these qualities, they take place against a backdrop of three major challenges that the churches were facing in Revelation. Uh, persecution was one of those. False teaching was the second one. That one showed up last week. And then moral compromise. And that's what's in the backdrop for the church that we're looking at this morning, the church at Theatira. There is this temptation for them uh, to, to tolerate sin. That's going to be kind of a key word in this text, tolerating sin. Uh, and the quality that Jesus is looking for that we see in this passage is holiness. And we'll define that for our purposes here this morning. It's developing Christ-like character. Holiness is what Jesus is looking for in his churches. Uh, this idea of, of being holy, of developing Christ-like character, uh, this is really central for us as we think about what it means to be disciples, what it means to be apprentices of Jesus. Right? The scriptures tell us that God's goal is to see us transformed into the likeness of Christ. Right? And I think sometimes it's, it's easy for us to have a somewhat shallow view of what God is looking for from people, to have this idea that being saved means that I go to heaven when I die, and that's kind of the extent of it. And while that might be true, that is true for those who have a relationship with Christ, uh, really we see that we're coming to heaven not as we are, but as people who are transformed and who are being transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. So Holiness becomes this indispensable quality that Jesus is looking for in the church. And at Theatira, the issue there, again, was that they were tolerating sin. And not tolerating people, that's, that's a good thing, right? This is, that is a Christian virtue for us to be tolerant of other people, but, um, but rather tolerant of sin itself. Um. This morning, as we, uh, as we get into this text, I want to kind of lay out where we're going to be going. Uh, so we're going to walk through this passage, but zoom in on three distinct statements, three statements that Jesus makes that help us understand what it looks like to pursue holiness and what it looks like to avoid the trap of coming to a place where we merely tolerate and sort of shrug at our sin. Uh, but the letter starts with a picture of who Jesus is, and so we will start there as well. Uh, but as we come to the text, let's pray, and then we'll look at the scripture together. Uh, Father God, we, uh, we come to you this morning uh, full of praise, full of worship, and also maybe a little sobered as we come to a, a difficult and challenging word in this text. Lord, would you... Would you give us uh, ears to hear it this morning? We pray that we would hear what your spirit is saying to the churches, and in particular, what you're saying to this church. God, what would you work in us? How can we more and more embody these seven qualities? And God, today as we, we look at this challenging passage, we pray uh, that your word would fall on good soil, that it would find hearts that are open and receptive, and it might take root there and bear good fruit. God, make us a people who look more and more like you. Uh, we pray that that would be reflected in our actions, our attitude, and how we speak. And God, in our, our presence in the world, too, uh, may our mission look different because we are people who increasingly look like Jesus. And God, we, we pray this morning, too, with hearts that are broken for what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, we pray your grace, your mercy on those who are 
grieving loved ones in Israel this morning and those who are grieving loved ones in Gaza as well. We pray, God, that your hand will be upon them. We pray, God, that you would be meeting people in the midst of their pain. We pray for justice as well as mercy. We pray, God, that uh, even as we anticipate further bloodshed there as, as an invasion is imminent, God, we pray that your spirit would go before, that you would ease human suffering and the humanitarian crisis and the violence that is happening now and the violence that is yet to come. Uh, Lord, we have no idea how peace can come to that part of the world, but you do. And so we pray, God, that you, the God of peace, would be at work there. We give you thanks. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends. So each letter to these churches in Revelation, each letter, it it starts with a word of encouragement, and then there's a word of correction, and then there's a word of promise. But for each of these letters, as we've seen, it starts with a picture of Jesus. Jesus reveals some aspect of himself to each church, and then what follows gets tied to how he reveals himself. So if you're to go back to John chapter 1 and revisit that, you've got this vision of Jesus, and it's a very interesting vision. And for each church, some element of that vision is pulled out. There's two that show up in this letter to Theatira. Verse 18. It says, To the angel of the church in Theatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So pause there for a moment. So Jesus begins with this picture of himself. And we, we ask the question in week one, and we want to kind of keep putting this in front of ourselves, of, of perhaps the reason that Jesus is doing this is that whatever challenge we find ourselves in, the thing we need first, the, need, the thing we need most, is just to see Jesus, to see him, and let that guide us. And that's true for each of these churches as well. He reveals himself here as the one who has eyes like blazing fire. Uh, What does that mean? All the symbolism here in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the one who sees all. He is the one who sees clearly. His gaze penetrates every mystery. It penetrates every dark place. His eyes, his insight sees all. This is a picture of Jesus as the one with penetrating insight. And then feet of bronze. So this is a callback to uh, a prophecy or vision in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And in this particular vision, kind of the short version of this, is you have this huge statue that represents the empire. This huge statue, and it's, it's large and it's imposing. It looks like it's absolutely indestructible, absolutely unshakable. But when you look closer, you see that its feet are made of clay. And it's not actually strong enough to support its own weight. It eventually collapses because it doesn't have the strength to be sustained. And Jesus gives this vision of of himself to John, to this particular church, presents himself as the one with feet like burnished bronze. And they're metal workers, by the way, in Theotira, so they would get this right away. Uh, He is unshakable. There is nothing that is taking him down. The empire is going to fall at some point. But the kingdom of God will not. It is unshakable. So this is the picture of Jesus that we're presented with as we come to this church as the one who sees all, the one with penetrating insight, eyes of blazing fire, and the one who cannot 
be shaken, the one with feet made out of burnished bronze. Hold that picture as we get into the rest of the text here. We'll come back to that. Verse 19, there's this word of encouragement. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Jesus says, I see you. I see what you are doing. I see what you're doing right. He says, you are doing great in love and faith and service and perseverance. This is not a bad resume, right? I mean, they're, they're doing great. I would love if Jesus looked at our church and he's like, hey, you guys are crushing it in those areas. That'd be amazing. Right? And, and what's more, uh, he says, I, I'm seeing improvement. Right? He says, you are doing more than you did at first. You are a church that is growing. You are pressing forward. You're doing this thing. Right? It's so easy for us to, to fall into a place where we just kind of play church instead of actually being the church. And Jesus looks at, at this church, Theatira, and says, you're not doing that. Right? You are, you are getting after it. Now, there's a contrast worth noting here as well. So if you remember back a couple weeks ago, the church in Ephesus, you remember the quality that they were lacking and Jesus calls them to? Right? It was love. He says, says, you guys are lacking love. And interestingly, they were praised. One of the reasons they were praised is they wouldn't tolerate sin. So you have kind of this mirror image between Ephesus and Theatira. Ephesus, on the one hand, who they're, they're not tolerating sin, but they didn't love well. And then Theatira, they're praised for their love. They're doing that well. But they're lacking in holiness. They've become too tolerant of the sin in their lives. And here's the thing, friends. Don't miss this. To both of these churches, Jesus says the same thing. He says you cannot be a church and be missing that particular element that I am calling out. You cannot be a church and lack love. And you cannot be a church and lack holiness. You can't choose one or the other. And say, well, it's, it's good enough, right? We, we got one. Now, both of these are qualities that are indispensable for the church. And I highlight this, friends. I highlight this because I think this is a pretty common struggle for church people, right? We, we want to do the right thing. We're, we're working out. I think most of us earnestly are really trying for that. But sometimes when we feel stuck between these things, we kind of make a choice. And on the one hand... You might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to compromise God's word. I'm going to pursue holiness. But we do that in a way where there's no love. And we just kind of bulldoze people, steamroll over them, right? The, uh, the term Bible thumper comes to mind. I think this is kind of what's envisioned there. Yeah, maybe I have a grasp of the truth, but I only kind of use it to knock people around, right? It's good to have holiness, but it's got to be paired with love. And on the other hand, I, I think for some of us, we're kind of on the other side of things. And, and we kind of carry around this unspoken uh, slogan of, 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 if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of love. And if that means I need to compromise God's word in the, uh, along the way to not cause myself or somebody else pain, then I'm going to be okay with that. And so we, we hold on to love, but we let go of truth. We let go of holiness. And we have to hear this, friends. Jesus says neither of those is an option for us. We need to learn from Jesus how to be people who walk in both, who walk in love and walk in truth, who walk in grace and walk in holiness. 
to pit them against each other is to create a false choice. Uh, what about you? As you hear those two described, does one or the other better fit you? I think most of us probably tend to fall one way or the other most of the time. Uh, and it's good to know. It's good to know, where is my temptation in this? And to hear the teaching of Jesus in this. Uh, reading on. So, Theatira, they've got, uh, they've got a pretty good resume as a church, right? Um, but... Jesus says there's this very necessary correction that has to go into this, and it's a, it's a hefty one. Uh, verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate, there's that word, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And then the rebuke gets really strong. He says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Uh, it's hard even to read, right? It's, anybody else cringing a little bit right now? Uh, it's a hard, hard text. Uh, it, and it's, it's hard because it's serious. And Jesus is invoking the language here, the Old Testament prophets, right? And the pattern in the prophets is typically the, the punishment fits the crime is how we would put it today. And so the, uh, uh, the prime issue in this church being sexual immorality. And therefore, you know, there will be a, a bed of suffering. Right? The sin here is referred to as adultery. He's telling the church, you're, in your sin, you're essentially cheating on Jesus. And the affair has resulted in children. Right? The followers of these teachings in that church are referred to as the children. And, um, you know, and gosh, I will strike her children dead. Uh, literal death? I, I don't know. Uh, most all of this language is symbolic. I tend to think, no, probably that's, he's not talking about literal death. But then I think, too, of Acts 5 and Ananias and Sapphira who did literally die as a result of their sin in the church. I think of 1 Corinthians 11, you know, and, and the shoddy treatment of the poor within that church. And it says there's some among you who have gotten sick and even died as a result of this. I don't know. But the point that Jesus is driving home here, and we dare not miss is that this is a big deal. For a church to claim to follow Jesus and not care about holiness and not be developing Christ-like character is not an option. And the antithesis of that, at least the way that it's framed in this particular church, is tolerance, tolerance of sin. Again, where we come with an attitude of, well, whatever. So what? And we kind of shrug at it as we go. Now, note here again, uh, Jesus, the, the rebuke here, it's, it's, it's for being tolerant of sin, not for being tolerant of people. Right? Tolerance for people is, is a Christian virtue. Accept one another, the scriptures tell us. Honor one another above yourselves. Bear with each other. Be patient with one another in your failings. Right? Tolerance for people 
is something we want to strive for, but not necessarily tolerance when it comes to uh, the ways that we engage in sin. So how do we do this, friends? How do we learn from Jesus to grow in holiness and not just grow tolerant of the sin in our lives and in our congregation? So, uh, again, there's three reasons Jesus gives here, three statements about how we might avoid falling into that trap. And then I want to give a a different spiritual practice with each of these as we think about how to grow in them. So, first one is this. It's that we tolerate sin because we are misled. Verse 20. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Right? So sometimes the reason that we tolerate sin in our lives is because we've been duped. Uh, We tolerate because we've been misled. We've bought into a teaching that isn't true, and we're living out of that. And I'll I'll just kind of touch on this briefly because this is where Doug took us last week, where in the the church we were looking at last week, the primary issue was this. It was false teaching. Uh, But uh, with that, we want to note here that moral compromise, the chief issue in the church we're looking at today, moral compromise is made that much worse when there's an element of false teaching in it. Right? It's one thing if you and I know the area that we're sinning and, and we're working on it. Right? We're leaning in and we're saying, God, help me with this. That's one thing. And that's difficult enough. But how much more is that compounded if we have bought into a line of teaching that says, well, that's really not something you need to work on at all. You don't have to sweat that. Right? That takes us to a place of tolerance, tolerance for our sin. Uh, this isn't new, of course. You know, if, if we think back to Genesis 1 and 2, you remember the garden you know, and, and the serpent's deception with Adam and Eve. Right? It was, did God really say da-da-da? Adding in that element of doubt. If we can be misled to a place where we're tolerating sin because we're not even thinking of it as sin anymore, then the battle is already lost. And that's one place that tolerance for our sin can grow when we are unaware of areas where we are being misled. And, you know, gosh, now we've got YouTube, we've got Google. It feels like, man, it is easier than ever, perhaps, to be misled in various ways. But here's a practice. Here's a spiritual discipline that we can put into, pray, into place that helps us in this, uh, helps us to, to grow more wary in a good way. And that is the practice of asking, where is it written? Where is it written? If you've been around a while, you're familiar with this statement. It's, it's one of the two slogans of our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. And Since the very beginning, this has been one of the hallmarks, that we ask each other this question. Where is it written? And it's acknowledgement that the scriptures are our guide for life, that they are the authoritative source of truth by which we live. And we hold them in such a way that they have authority in our lives. But to do that well, we need to be asking the question, what do they say? Where is it written? And this is is one way we can grow in our capacity to be misled less often, to know truth well, 
is simply asking the question. When something comes up and you're like, man, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure. That doesn't feel quite right. I'm not sure about that. This is the go-to question. Where is it written? And seeking to understand God's word and what it teaches, and then with the help of our brothers and sisters, to live by that. Uh, that's one. Right? We tolerate sin when we are misled. Uh, second is this. Uh, it says that we tolerate sin because we don't want to let it go. Verse 21 Jesus says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Right? You simply don't want to. Uh, the, the Greek text behind this literally says she didn't want to. Right? That was the issue with her sin. She just didn't want to give it up. And God's people read this and say, duh. <laughs> right? That is most often the place where we stumble, or I'll speak for me, not for you. There are times when I'm misled, there's times when I'm duped, but most often, if I'm not willing to deal with my sin, it's because I don't want to. It's because I like it, and I want to keep it, and I don't want to let go of whatever it is that's holding on to me. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, Maybe that's just me. But, here's the thing. I think we can look at that on kind of a surface level and just say, okay, right? I I like what I'm doing or what I'm not doing, whatever the case might be, and I want to keep it that way, and that would be true. But I think if we, we maybe go one layer deeper, often the reason that we are unwilling is because we don't imagine that we can live a life that's going to be satisfying to us without that sin. Life is unthinkable without it. And so we're not willing to let it go. I remember Dallas Willard talking about this and talking about, uh, how do you put it? He said, um, so most people don't want to lie. It's not especially pleasurable. But we feel like we have to. We feel like we have to to keep ourselves out of trouble or we feel like we have to to make ourselves look better, whatever the reason for it. And the alternative, telling the truth, is too unthinkable. Or or here's another one, maybe kind of keeping with this passage and its emphasis on sexual immorality. I I remember having a conversation with a young woman a number of years ago. And she was explaining to me, and she was kind of this, this mix of sorrow, but also defensiveness, and was was offended by some of the scripture's teachings on this. But she was explaining to me, I Every guy I date, go out with a couple times, and then I sleep with him. And she said, I, I have to do this, or I'm not going to be able to keep this guy. And, and I remember her saying, you know, maybe in, in other times it worked differently and it would have been fine, but today, if I expect to have a guy and to keep that guy, I'm going to have to sleep with him. And... Um, I remember in the the conversation saying to her something along the lines of, is it working? Is sleeping with these guys, is it working? Is it making your life better? Or is it just making it more complicated? And there's silence. I asked, what if? What if you were to stop this and you, you stop sleeping with the guys that you date, 
what do you think would happen then? And she said, well, I'd be single, right? I'd be, and maybe I'd be single for a long time, and maybe I'd be single forever. And I asked, and what would that be like? Is it possible that it would be better for you to walk close to Jesus and trust him to give you a satisfying life, even if that is what ends up resulting? Uh, and I, I don't know how that particular story ends. She wasn't with us a tremendous long time. But I, I can tell you, I've had versions of that conversation with dozens of young men and women, maybe hundreds over the years, uh, but a, a lot. And I've seen a lot say to Jesus, even in something as personal and as difficult as that, I'm going to trust you to give me a life that's full and abundant and satisfying, even if it means saying no in that area. And, and I've, I've seen so many say yes and seeing the abundant life of Jesus take root in them in ways that are so much more powerful than when they were living the opposite. Are you tracking with me here? Listen, friends, this is where we have to remember this picture of Jesus with eyes of blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze. This picture of Jesus is the one with penetrating insight who knows where our best life lies. And he knows what it is to have a life that's unshakable. Right? Think of all the ways that we build our lives up on feet of clay. We build them up on sins that we tolerate because we can't imagine what life would be like without those. And we inevitably collapse. It cannot hold the weight. But Jesus' feet can. Can we trust him for that? Right, that's two. Jesus says we tolerate sin because we don't want to let it go. Uh, let me actually throw in one more word before we go to the, the last point here. But it says in this text too, I've given her time, but she is unwilling. I'm, I've given her time. And I want us to hear that. That is a word of grace. And God is, God is amazing in the time that he gives us. One of the refrains of the Old Testament throughout the Psalms is that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, that he's slow to anger, that he's quick to love. I'm not sure we always feel that. But the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I recognize how long his patience with me is. I can fail in the same direction for such a long time, and it feels like he's just so gracious with me. I think here, look, look this one up later. This is a fun one. But Genesis 15, where God makes this promise to Abraham and says, uh, says that Abraham's descendants are going to be given this land. They're going to inherit this place. And they'd never had that. There are these refugees, these wanderers, totally vulnerable to their enemies. He says, I'm going to give you this land. But, and then this is where it gets interesting. But he says, but not yet. Because the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. And what he's talking about there is the current inhabitants of the land. Uh, they had not been given ample time to repent. They did not deserve at that point to lose their land to the Israelites. You know how long it was until it was time? 400 plus years. That's patience. 400 years, God is saying to the Amorites, choose another path. And they don't. And eventually they receive what they deserve for that, and the Israelites take their spot. 
God's incredibly patient with us. And I, I want to make sure we have that clear as we're talking about uh, these matters of sin. I know they're so heavy. I just want us to hear them really in, in the right spirit. But there's, I, I didn't put this quote on the board, just hear it. But uh, there's a, a Catholic thinker named Jim Keenan, and this statement came across in the last couple of weeks just really got me. He, he says, for Jesus, when you read the Gospels, usually where Jesus got really upset was not where people are weak and trying, but where they're strong and they've stopped caring. Right? Did you hear that? Usually where Jesus gets really upset, it's not where people are weak, but they're trying. It's where they're strong and they no longer care. And he defines sin there as not bothering to care. That's exactly what we see in this church we're looking at. They stopped caring about their sin. They just started to tolerate it instead of working at it. Uh, Do you see the difference? If we are failing forward, God has patience for us all day long. It's when we stop caring and we just say, okay, whatever, I guess this is the way it is, where we come to a different place. So, uh, One more here. Verse 24, we tolerate sin because of what we think we know. Now it says, I say to the rest of you in Theatira, to to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Now, the believers who had become tolerant of their sin in Theatira, uh, they're described here as having learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now this is weird, but it's important, so hang with me. Uh, so, in the first and second centuries, there was a, a pretty popular class of religions called the mystery religions, or the teachers of these were sometimes referred to as the Gnostics. You familiar with that term? You've probably heard the term Gnostics before. The idea here is they proposed all sorts of alternative beliefs, but they were all based on the same thing. They were all based on a claim to special knowledge that they had secret knowledge that wasn't available to others, that had only been entrusted to them. Uh, These are the so-called deep secrets that Jesus is referring to here. And so these Gnostics, they saw themselves as sort of a a spiritual aristocracy, saw themselves as elites, as thought leaders. And they knew things that normal people did not know. And based on that, they felt freedom to go ahead and, and live in a particular way. And as these teachers came into the church in, in the first century, uh, kind of the, the message that they brought was, you know, they'd, they'd hear the Gospels and hear what the apostles taught and say, well, that's part of the truth, but did you also know about this? And they add in these other layers. And so you have in, in the New Testament a lot of language that talks about uh, uh, the apostles saying, what we receive from the beginning we have passed down to you. Or, um, or warnings against the Gnostics saying, don't listen to those who come and say, okay, we're also going to add in these things. And friends, here's the point. Uh, the scriptures are not only true, but they are also sufficient. And that's sort of where this warning comes from. We tolerate sin when we become overconfident in what we know. And when we choose what we think we know over the revelation of scripture. 
Now, I point this out, even though the average person here is probably like, why in the world would I ever do that? What does this have to do with me? Maybe nothing, but let me give you a couple examples from just the last two centuries of how this still kind of pops up for us in the church on occasion. Uh, one that maybe you've, you've thought of already would be a group like the Mormons, right? Where in the, the 19th century, uh, they started a, an offshoot of Christianity. It's not really Christian, but it, the, the origin of that was the scriptures are not all we need. God has also revealed this other book to us, to Joseph Smith. And so we're going to add this in. We're going to follow this as well. Uh, some 50, 60 years out of that from a totally different source. There's another thing that happened in the church uh, under the, the banner of a movement called modernism, uh, where this was at the height of Darwinian evolution and kind of a scientific revolution that was happening around the world. Uh, a lot of folks came to the conclusion, we know that supernatural things cannot happen, and so we're going to look at the scriptures using our special knowledge, a new tool called literary criticism. We're going to look at the scriptures and say, well, these are the things that are true and these are the things that are not. But it was kind of the special knowledge that empowered that school of thought and it, it took root pretty dramatically in a lot of churches. About 25 years after that, uh, there is a movement in the sciences known as eugenics. Have you heard of this? Uh, so in eugenics, uh, the idea here was that we know, they would say, we know science proves beyond any doubt uh, that some races are superior to other races. And as people took that special knowledge into the church, some decided to start reading the scripture through that lens and find a way to make the Bible agree with that. This was, this, by the way, this was not fringe science. This was... This, if you're a person who likes to follow the science, this is what you would have followed. This was taught at every major university. This was a bedrock fact at that point. But it was the special knowledge. And those who thought they knew read that into their read of the scriptures. If we're looking in the present day, uh, I think when we, if you're familiar with what this is, but if you look uh, on the, the political right uh, to the movement known as QAnon, if you don't know what it is, stay away from it. Um, don't, don't even Google. Um, but I, I think there's a real element of Gnosticism there, uh, where it's, it's a bunch of conspiracy theories mixed with so-called prophecies and the occasional Bible verse thrown in. But it's all based around, we know these things, and so you should, you should live according to these things. Uh, on the left, you have, I think, maybe a, not a corresponding phenomenon, but a similar thing happening on the left right now, uh, with those who are talking about human sexuality in our day and how we should think about that. There's those who say, well, uh, those who lived in the first century couldn't possibly have known what we know now about sexual orientation. They could have known about uh, loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships. And so we have to read the scriptures through that lens. And, and that's it's not accurate. They actually did know about those things. But even if they didn't, that's not the point. In all of these, in all of these, the point is, what we think we know can lead us to tolerate sin. If we trust that above the sufficiency of God's word. Uh, here's the thing. 
if we are thinking about Jesus as the one whose eyes are blazing the fire, the, the one whose insight penetrates all, the one who cannot be shaken, then we aren't going to find an area of life where Jesus is surprised. We aren't going to come to something in life. We're not going to come into a new body of knowledge where Jesus is like, oh, I didn't anticipate that. Always, we're going to find that he is the one that can be trusted because that is where an unshakable life is found. That is where truth and insight is always found as we turn to the person of Jesus. And as we do that, as we do that, we find... uh, we find a, a bedrock to stand upon that keeps us from being shaken too. Uh, one more spiritual discipline here this morning and that correspond with this. It's the discipline of submission. And in this, uh, rather than our understanding being the final word, we choose to come under the teaching of the global church, capital C. Uh, we, ch- we choose to submit our understanding to that of the larger body of brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, So, in other words, we we ask the question in any given area, not just what do I think, but what does the broader global historical church think about this particular topic? So, for me, what this looks like, um, certainly when I'm, I'm wrestling through something, I'm looking to what others and kind of our tribe, so to speak, and the Christian church would think about this thing, but also asking the question, how do people in different cultures understand this? Right? So I, I try to spend a lot of time interacting with authors uh, and, uh, and non-authors, with people, um, who, who aren't white, and asking, how do they read this text? What do they catch that I miss? Because I'm looking through the lens that I am looking through, and vice versa. I've got other friends who are scholars who of other colors who do the same. Um, and asking beyond that, what do people in other countries and other cultures, how have they read this particular text? What do believers in Asia think about this? How do they read this? How do believers in Africa read this? How do believers in the Middle East read this? And beyond this too, how does the church historically read this? What kind of thinking has developed over the centuries around this? And, and in this, as we submit ourselves to the broader understanding of the church, this keeps us within the lines. This keeps us from straying out of orthodoxy. If we're willing to not let our word be the final word, but to come under the word of the larger church. Does that make sense? This one takes a, a little heavier lift, doesn't it? But it's a discipline as we develop it that keeps us from coming to a place where we tolerate sin. It keeps us from straying into places where we think too much of our own knowledge and rather than sharpening it off of the knowledge of others as well. Well, friends, man, is that a heavy enough word for us this morning or what? Uh, listen, God is sufficient to meet us even in these places that are difficult. The question for us is, are we willing to trust him in that? Do we trust that Jesus is good enough? Do we trust that he is wise enough? Do we trust that he is loving enough to lead us even 
when we come to places as uncomfortable as this. As we, uh, as we turn to response this morning, as we come to the communion table, I want you to think about who Jesus is. Jesus the unshakable, Jesus the all-knowing. That is the one who invites us to follow him and the one who invites us to his table.